Father, this morning, we join with the voice of all creation that sings out, Glory, do your holy name. Lord, we pray that your church would cry out with boldness and that her numbers would increase as your gospel goes forward. That those whom you have set your heart upon the redeemed might lift up their praises and extol and ascribe unto you the glory that you deserve, lest the rocks cry out. We thank you, Lord, that you, from the beginning, before time began, had in your decree a plan to glorify yourself, by which you proceeded forward with your will and decree to create this entire world. Lord Jesus, to preserve for yourself a people by your redemptive plan, to reveal that by type and shadow, and then to fulfill it in the fullness of time in the coming of Christ our Lord. We thank you in the fullness of the second person of the Trinity and his ministry is the fullness of our salvation. That when Jesus Christ died on Calvary for the sins of the elect, the final payment that was due our sin was taken upon the shoulders of another, upon the bruised back and the pierced hands and feet of a substitute Lamb of God. And in his salvation work on Calvary, we find our hope for eternal life. But we thank you that our Savior is risen that death could not hold him, and the chains of the last enemy were not strong enough for our God. But he broke forth from the tomb on the third day, breaking both seal and clattering the sword and defying the grave and the stone. And all at once, Lord, the creation and the worldly powers of men bowed before the sovereign who created them in the first place. And Jesus Christ was risen. We thank you that he ascended unto glory to receive a kingdom, and even now, He is exercising his right and rule to put all his enemies under his footstool. And we thank you that he has subdued us by the power of his gospel. This morning, as we turn to your word, which reveals to us your glories, Lord, in so many ways, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to fresh understanding and our hearts would be stirred to deeper appreciation and our confession would be equipped to more articulately articulately proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ the only message that saves. For your glory alone, we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. This morning, I'm so thankful and what a great privilege it is to gather around the proclamation of God's word, lifting up songs to glorify his holy name. I beg you to turn with me in your scriptures to Nehemiah 9 this morning as we open up the holy word of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Indeed, all flesh is as grass. And when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, it withers and is destroyed. But the words that we turn to today will stand forever. In a moment, we'll read Nehemiah 9, 18 through 26, and I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's message is Great Mercies. This is a phrase that occurs at least three times in Nehemiah chapter 9. We see in verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Later in this same chapter, we find a reference in verse 27. And in time their suffering, in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven, you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. The next verse as well, so that they had dominion over them speaking of the evil and the hand of the enemies that the people were subject to as a consequence of their sin. 
Yet in the end of verse 28, we find this. When they, re- when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. In verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them, nor forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This morning, as we are mindful of the wonders of our God, may we follow the confession of saints of old in Nehemiah 9, who turned their attention to the mercy of our Lord. The aim of this morning's message is to give voice to our repentance according to the covenant example of Nehemiah chapter 9. To give voice to our own repentance as we are mindful of the wonders of our great God, focusing with some particular attention today on His great mercies. Would you stand out of reverence for God's Word as we hear today His Scriptures proclaimed from Nehemiah 9, verses 18 through 26. Again, Nehemiah 9, verses 18 through 26. Here is the Word of God. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that they had told their fathers to enter, that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. Verse 24, so the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me introduce this message with a bit of review. We are studying in this series in Nehemiah a covenant renewal ceremony. Following the instructions of Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 8, which as you recall was the initial covenant renewal ceremony that was instituted by God through Moses to the people, special instructions were given. Upon crossing into the promised land, they were to erect these stones, they were to carve in them the law of God and plaster a permanent, permanent memorial. And they were to serve the Lord their God by taking seriously His word, confessing on Mount Ebal and Gezerim the curses and blessings that attend obedience and faithfulness to His covenant and law. Now following these instructions, the people now returning to the land participate once again 
the exiles now coming back from Babylon in a similar covenant renewal ceremony. The great king has been acknowledged as their sovereign in chapter 9, verses 5 through 6. And this roughly follows the five-point covenant model so common in Old Testament documents such as we have it today. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone have made heaven, uh, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. The hosts of heaven worship you. Point number one in covenant structure is an announcement of the great king, the true sovereign. And so having confessed Yahweh as their Lord, their Savior, their Sovereign, then they move to point number two of covenant structure, which is to recount the history of their relationship to the greater King. Hence, chapter 9 includes an accounting of the timeline of certain events, beginning with God's gracious covenant to Abram, which we covered last week, and then proceeding even to our text today. The great King has been acknowledged as their Sovereign, This formal covenant event then continues with the record of the history of Israel in relationship with Yahweh. This extended historical prologue is structured around the wonders of Almighty God. And that is from our past or prior to our passage in Nehemiah 9, verse 16, recognizing that the stiff necks of their fathers refused to obey his commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. In other words, The people tied the apostasy of the former generations to their ignoring, despising, or taking lightly the wonders of the Lord. Suffice it to say, it stands to reason that chapter 9 features the wonders of the Lord. And first among them is the gracious covenant that he had made with Abraham, their forefather. The people affixed their names to a firm covenant in writing. Recognize that's in 9 uh, chapter 13. 9 verse 38, recognizing the stiff-necked rebellion of their father's generation is the sinful consequence of ignoring the wondrous works of their gracious, merciful, and steadfastly loving God. This explains their repentance evident in a memorial worship service wherein they read the scriptures and confess their dependence on the Lord, which uh, which service where, or uh, dependence on the Lord, which commands the attention of the people for hours and hours, excuse me, they uh, recall and affirm his covenant commands, uh, his covenant promises to their forefather, Abram, and soon to be Abraham, of course, in the record. They recall and affirm his covenant commands or his covenant promises to their forefather, Abraham, his conquering sovereign glory, overcoming their enemies, his divine revelation and his miraculous provision, all in the context of Exodus 34, 6 which is cited in verse 17. So in verse 17 in Nehemiah 9, we have this quotation from Exodus 34. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And this proves to be a central text of God's revelation, His self-disclosure throughout Scripture. Of course, all this is still in review. Much of it was covered in our sermon last week. Furthermore, in our text today, The people recognize that their generational sins and general obstinance has served to show just how great the mercies of God truly are. The remaining portion of the covenant history recited in this ceremony extols the long-suffering of Yahweh who has remained faithful and forgiving in spite of their great 
blasphemies. How glorious, how merciful is our God. Oh, be mindful, saints, of His mercies. Be mindful of His wondrous mercies. Because even though His people blasphemed, and even though we are so quickly distracted from our service and commitments and promises to the Lord, even though we are so easily prone to backslide, much like His people at this time, nevertheless, the Lord is steadfast, and He is loving and merciful and slow to anger, and His love towards us indeed is a forgiving love that is only magnified in light of our frailty. And so it stands to reason that the people would point to the great mercies of the Lord, even in the context of the great blasphemies of their forefathers. Our passage today is structured around this contrast, the great mercies of God despite the great blasphemies of His people. As the people repent, they acknowledge their wayward hearts and frequent backsliding. Then they go on to beseech the Lord for His mercy and forgiveness to continue toward them in verse 32. And they seal their covenant renewal commitments by written covenant document and contract, if you will, in verse 38. With all the more covenant history today as we apply this text, we have all the more covenant history to be mindful of right now in our day and age. Let us therefore remember the great mercies of our God upon our own land and His abounding grace and steadfast love secured for each believer at the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's an introduction for our message today. And now let's look at our text under this heading. In their repentance, Israel confessed the following. Number one, their great blasphemies. In their repentance, Israel confessed their great blasphemies. Number two, they confessed God's great mercies. It'll be verses 19 through 25. Blasphemies in verse 18. God's great mercies, verses 19 through 25. Number three, they confess further blasphemies as they go through the record of their own history in verse 26. And then we'll close with the foreshadowing. In their repentance, Israel foreshadowed ultimate blasphemy and ultimate mercy pictured in the events surrounding the cross of Jesus Christ himself. In their repentance, Israel confessed their great blasphemies. Our first point this, today is drawn from verse 18. Let's back up to 17 to grasp the context. Speaking of former generations, uh, verse 16 describes them as fathers who had acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. Let me pause and explain that phrase. What does it mean to have a stiff neck in this context? Well, think of an animal like an oxen who refuses to be led or pointed toward his task. Now, animals you know, that were used in agriculture at this time or even some animals you know, used today in similar tasks, they have devices like yokes or harnesses and they're hitched up to a plow. And a stiff-necked oxen is one who refuses to be directed by that yoke toward the task that his master has appointed for him. Or a horse has a bridle and a bit, right? And you pull on the reins in order to direct that horse where you wish to travel. A stiff-necked horse refuses to move his head when the bridle is pulled toward the direction. So to follow through on this analogy... God's word, his directives, his statutes, his commandments, his law is the bridle and bit, if you will. It's the yoke placed upon the sinfulness of man as God's gracious structure within a society in order to steer them toward his glory and away from their own destruction. And a stiff-necked people refuse to be turned by the proclamation of the absolute truth of God's word. 
A stiff-necked people spit out the bit of God's truth and his law, and they refuse to be steered away again towards his glory and away from their own destruction and incur more pain as a consequence, judgment, and worst of all, hell itself if they do not repent. That's what it means to be stiff-necked. And this stiff-neckedness showed itself in blasphemy. We see this in verse 17 on into 18. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Thus begins our primary text this morning, verse 18. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. So we've seen a definition or an explanation we've heard of stiff-neckedness. Now let's get a, a better understanding of that word blasphemies. What is blasphemy? Well, if you just look at the dictionary definition, it is speaking irreverently of the sacred or more particularly of God. It is irreverence for the holy, especially the Lord. It is to desecrate, to despise or ignore, or just to even treat lightly what is glorious, powerful, precious, and worthy of praise. This idea of holiness or sacredness or set-apartness in a class all to itself that God represents is a concept that if people don't grasp, they aren't getting the very first thing of the gospel truth, the reality of their own sin, and the imminent, the glorious, the uh, incredible holiness of God. Without understanding that categorical difference, there is no truth that can be assimilated into the hearts and minds of the people. That is to say, a stiff-necked people care, could care less about the holiness of God and could care less about the danger and the judgment due their own sin. But a soft-hearted people, a people that are susceptible to correction by the proclamation of God's word, who the Spirit has called from spiritual death unto life, begin to hear the siren, the warning song of the sound of the gospel in their ears, and they recognize that they are wicked and fall immeasurably short of His holiness. But God, on the other hand, is perfect and holy and righteous and sacred and worthy of our praise, and there should not be any stain or blight or imperfection ever in his presence in order to preserve this state of absolute perfection and glory. And so that's the truth about who God is. But to blaspheme him is to not recognize that, to not care about that, or to treat it lightly. It's to spit upon that which is worthy of our praise. It's to desecrate or treat as dirty or common or small or as irreverent, that which is set apart as a holy thing. So the people did this, and how did they do this? Did they, they did this by their idolatry, that is, confessed in their great blasphemies in verse 18. Now there are four instructive phrases, four insightful phrases for us today, I believe, to apply this passage that makes sense in our time as well. Great blasphemies is illustrated by these four truths in verse 18. Number one, they made. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is our God, you can pause right there at they made and recognize the Babel building impulse. Remember when we were in Genesis chapter 11, 
The reason that Babel was wicked is because the people determined in their own initiative and their own strength and their own ideas, faith in the will of the majority, they pooled together their effort and ingenuity of man and decided that they would make for themselves a name, they would make bricks and burn them thoroughly, they would build themselves a city with a heavenly tower. You see, it was self-centered human initiative that reflected original sin all the way back to the garden. You can be as God. There is only one creator, and if we pretend to be him, we are committing a great blasphemy. We cannot make anything of merit. We can only steward what God has provided, and we do so with the means that he grants us, with the mind that he uh, ordered for us, with the ability and the body that he breathed life into, with the engineering of our whole physical form that is that we owe his beautiful engineering and creative power uh, to for doing anything. But if people determine in their own strength and in their own ingenuity, independent of God, declare themselves autonomous from him and decide in their humanism to build something by their own efforts, this is blasphemy. So what did they make? Well, they made something for themselves, even when they made for themselves a golden calf. Another important phrase, for themselves. <clears throat> As we see this phrase, we recognize the primary motive of the people at this time was not to worship the Lord, was not to glorify Him, not to serve at His pleasure, but self-indulgence. This is a man-centered endeavor. The central value of culture, consequently at this time and in our day, may I suggest, is man-centered and man-pleasing. We are busy about making things for ourselves. Democracy is worshipped as a God, the will of the majority to make for ourselves a better tomorrow by exercising our collective will by making things that we think will ensure the future. This is blasphemy. In Exodus 19.16, the people trembled. Why? Because God had come down upon Sinai and had revealed himself in a firestorm of glorious power and thundered with his authority to deliver to Moses the law a picture of his holiness and power. Because the people were sinful in this picture, they had to be separated from that mountain. But instead of fearing the Lord in the trembling yes and awe before him sense, but also faith sense that he would provide for them a mediator, namely Moses, to speak to God on their behalf, they let their human fear get the best of them. They said in Exodus 32, verse 1, that they didn't know what be, had become of Moses, so they decided to build for themselves an idol. From this we draw a principle. Extreme fear is a motive for idolatry. Extreme fear, realizing that they are not fit for God's presence, cowering from that, but not trusting His means to provide fellowship and favor in a holy God, and then also, in just a few weeks that Moses was on the mountain receiving the glorious truths of God's word, the people are frightened, uncertain, insecure. They don't know where their leader is, and they don't know what's happened to him. So what do they do? In their fear, in their insecurity, and in their uncertainty, they decide to make for themselves a golden calf. Now today, in April 2020, as we've referenced in recent messages, our world is dealing with the threat of a pandemic that's caused a global hysteria, panic and concern. And fear dominates the news. Everywhere you look, even the 
kind of under the breath hum of conversations in places that you might frequent while you're out shopping at the, pl- at the few that remain open, like a grocery store and so forth, there seems to be a concern that's bubbling up from the consciousness of the collective culture. And it is not, a, generally speaking, an expression of faith in the one true God that is sovereign over the human body and sends pestilence according to his purposes, sometimes to chastise and judge. It is not faith Generally speaking, this cultural outcry due to this pandemic and the one who holds the world in his hands and can set us free and preserve our body by the word of his power just as he's spoken into being in the first place. No, it's an uncertainty, it's an insecurity, it's a fear and a hysteria that betrays a lack of trust and faith in God. And we act as if God is on the mountain and we don't know where he is and we can't trust that he will answer or respond. So we need to make our own way. Have you heard anything along these lines lately? As you've listened to the news or the sound bites or the experts? I'm sure you have. But fear is a great motive for idolatry. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They made for themselves a golden calf. The people traded the powerful and immaterial and personal God for an image of strength that they could touch and see. And they passed it off as legitimate. Now get this. When the people were worshiping, Yahweh is even invoked in reference. They say through Aaron, Aaron says, you know, come let us feast before the Lord. And he uses the holy name for God. But what has he done? He's broken the commandment, the second commandment that God is giving to Moses at that same time, if you will, on the holy mountain. And he has made a graven image. Why? Because there is a lack of faith and trust in the powerful and immaterial yet personal God. And because they don't trust that he is strong, cows, oxen, and in fact in scripture and at this time are often images of strength. Because they don't trust that he is sufficient to save, they trade the personal God for an image of strength that they could touch and see. And, they cor- and in so doing, they corrupt their worship. Have we corrupted our own worship in this day by exchanging our soul's confidence in the powerful, immaterial, and personal God for images or people or ideas or philosophies or science or promises or personalities that project strength to us, people that we can touch and see, and ideas that we can read and understand, and have we passed them off as legitimate? They were claiming to worship the Lord, while all the while they were committing blasphemy. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And notice that last phrase, they made for themselves golden calf, your God who. They ascribe to this thing of their own design, the glory that is reserved for the jealous God who deserves it. This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. No, it's not. Who will bring us up out of Egypt of fear and despair and concern and disease and so forth? Is this your God, Dr. Fauci, giving regular speeches and so forth, presenting hope? Is this your God, Donald Trump, hope against hope, telling us the latest breakthroughs, perhaps provide a cure? Is this your God, 
Oh, the exemplary leadership by some people's account by Governor Cuomo in New York City, who's trying to give peace or trying to give consolation to the people that we've got this thing handled, even though the disease is running rampant in his city. Is this your God who will bring you out of Egypt, even in our state, Tim Walls, who is you know, trying his best through policies and so forth to limit the spread of this disease. Is that where we place our trust? Is this your God, the stimulus check that promises you a pitily little $1,200 per couple to get you through? Meanwhile, we're facing the imminent collapse of the global economy because of our response to this very thing in the first place. Who is your God? Is it a golden calf that we have uh, substituted for the Lord because our extreme fear has moved us toward idolatry and thus we exchange the glorious, powerful, immaterial God who created this world in the first place and is evidenced all around us and is personally uh, available in His Son, Jesus Christ, who exchanged Him for an image of strength that we can touch and see. You know, this week I came across a news story. Actually, I first heard it on a podcast and I yelled, shut up, spontaneously as I heard it because it got me upset. Governor Cuomo, again, I referenced him in New York State, he asserted, quote, the number is down, meaning cases of COVID-19, this disease due to the coronavirus that we're facing. The number is down because we brought the number down. He added, God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. That's how it works. It's math. And if you don't continue to do that, it's going, you're going to see the number go back up. And that will be a tragedy if the number goes back up. This is the same governor who signed a bill the most progr- among the most progressive in the nation, quote-unquote, a law which allows abortions up to the last month of birth recently. And the whole, what was it, Empire State Building was uh, bathed in pink light. Well, guess what? Recently, the Empire State Building was bathed in a different color light to honor all the hospital workers who are trying desperately to save thousands and thousands on their deathbed. How much longer... Will the fear continue before idol, people who are worshiping idols like Governor Cuomo repent and say, if there's any hope for freedom from this disease, if there's any hope to salvage something of an economy, if there's any hope that we would not be in the grip of this hysteria in the future, we must turn to the God who created our body systems in the first place, who spoke this world into being, who allows nations to rise according to his pleasure and reserves the right to judge them in one fell swoop. New York could be overrun. It could become a ghost town. Have you not seen that in the news lately? The quiet, eerie streets resembling more of a zombie movie than they do the ordinary affairs that we just thought would continue uh, ad infinitum, didn't we, in our idolatry just months ago. You see, we are guilty of great blasphemies. Why? Because in our fear, we make for ourselves a golden calf and we ascribe to other things and other people the glory that God alone deserves. Nothing will bring us up out of Egypt. Nothing will bring us up out of our bondage and oppression and despair, and especially our sin, except the Lord and His anointed, the one that He commissions, the one that He sends, His Savior. You know, He's foreshadowed in our passage today in verse 27, or the passage that we'll study next. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies." This is the only way of salvation. In your great sorrow and affliction and judgment and concern, you cry out to the Lord and He provides a Savior. You don't cry out to government, to science, to money, to politicians, and to studies and to academia and to scientists and experts and so on and so forth. 
These are all blasphemous sources of hope if they are not under God. And in their repentance, Israel confessed their great blasphemies. May we do the same. Secondly, they confessed God's great mercies. We turn back to our text and we see in 19 through 25 how the mercies of the Lord are listed here. These are the wonders that they are mindful of as they continue to confess His direct personal involvement, His gracious, steadfast love in their own history. Quote, You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and the people and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued it before them, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured the fortified cities and the rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Wow, the mercies of the Lord were overflowing. And did this people deserve it? Far from it. They had denied the Lord who had split the Red Sea and led them out in miraculous way uh, just, you know, whatever, weeks, months prior. And they denied Him when they built that golden calf and turned their attention to other, some other tangible expression of strength. While at the same time, irony of ironies, the law of God itself was delivered by the very finger of the Almighty to the one who God had appointed to lead them, namely Moses. Nevertheless, God was never, or nevertheless, God was great in His mercies. His great mercies were shown in His provision. And on your own time with a highlighter, perhaps you would go through this text and again, highlight the ascribing language. We covered this last week, and it was the subpoints of last week. Notice how many times the people ascribe to the Lord a great wonder, a mercy. They say, for instance, you did not forsake them. You and your great mercies did not forsake them. That's ascribing language. In other words, the reason why they were safely led those many years through the wilderness is because the Lord led them on that journey. It wasn't Moses. It was the one whom Moses served. Moses served under him. He did not forsake them in the wilderness. Moses, in fact, in his sin, was not able to enter into the promised land. In a sense, Moses forsook the people inasmuch as he was an imperfect savior, he himself a sinner. But they, he served in the place of one, prefigured one, was symbolic of one who would not forsake them. And that was, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, the people recognized that God led them through. This was his provision. You led them with a pillar of cloud and fire. Again, ascribing language. The pillar of cloud led them in the way, and did not depart 
them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, for them the way by which they should go. One of the most amazing events, I think, of the Exodus, for me anyways, is when the people gather at the Red Sea and they're frustrated and fearful once again. They're doubting God's power to save them. They should not. They had just witnessed 10 plagues sovereignly destroying the economy of the greatest empire the globe had known up to that point, as far as I can tell. And now they're facing the Red Sea. They're between a rock and a hard place, quite literally, this body of water, and behind them, Pharaoh's pursuing chariots. But what happens? That cloud that was leading them, it passes from the front and circles all the way around and becomes a shield and stands between them and the pursuing armies. Do you think Pharaoh's armies would be able to go through that cloud and attack a single soul that was encamped right there at the Red Sea? Absolutely not. That cloud and that fire represented God's presence himself. If you go to Genesis 15 and compare this language, you will see that when God cuts covenant with Abraham, he passes through the pieces of the severed animals by what? A flaming pot or a, a, a smoking pot and a flaming torch. Isn't that interesting? Smoke and fire. And now here God is revealed in his holy presence as fire and smoke, a pillar of kids. How did the people see during the day? What did they follow during the day? It was, yeah, and how did they see at night? What did they follow? Very good. And that was God himself revealed, his presence revealed in cloud and fire, uh, just as he was revealed in smoke and fire at the time of Abram. So anyway, that cloud moves around behind the people and stands between them and the pursuing armies. And in this, you see God's provision and his great mercies. He was their shield. He would pursue them, or he would protect them from the pursuing Egyptians. And he would lead them all the way to their destiny. Even though the people continually doubted, nevertheless, the Lord was steadfast and faithful and loving and gracious. And these, and this is the record of his great mercies. Also, we see that he sustained them in the wilderness by food. You gave them and his spirit. Verse 20, you gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness when they lacked no, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Again, note the ascribing language. You gave your good spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the spirit of God himself, was dispatched, was sent, was directed to them to instruct them. He did so by giving them the law of God, by speaking to Moses directly, the revealed holy word. And he did so by the accompanying presence of the spirit, as we've read, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. And then he supernaturally supplied their day-to-day needs. The Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. When we pray that prayer, we ought to remember the glories of our God and his wonders that were multiplied among his people, even manna in the wilderness and water from a rock. You sustain them. You gave your good spirit by sending yourself to attend their way. You sustain them in the wilderness and we might ask, how much greater does God sustain us? Those pictures of sovereign uh, sustenance provided in the wilderness of manna and water coming from a rock are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the bread that was sent from heaven. He is the spring of living water unto eternal life. And he goes to prepare a place for us, our own promised land. God's great mercies, provision, next predominance. 
You gave them kingdoms, again, the ascribing language. You multiplied their children. You brought them into the land. You subdued the inhabitants before them. All of this, these are landmark victories, by the way. When we see in verse 22, so they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. If I have my references correct, those two references or those two examples of conflict of war come from Numbers 21, 21 through 25, where God gave the people victory over the inhabitants of the land, though potentially greater in number and certainly greater in fighting ability. Nevertheless, God caused them to have dominion over the area that he has set aside for them. And he did so by giving them kingdoms, subduing nations into into their hand by multiplying their children as they continued to fulfill that great and first command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land with God's people. He brings them into the land and he subdues it unto them and all the inhabitants bow before the purposes of God in his advancing people. And finally, this section of God's great mercies closes with this record of prosperity in verse 25. They captured fortified cities, a rich land, took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. But notice there's a phrase that might signal a shift. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. The temptations of prosperity and plenty can sometimes lead to self-serving indulgence and self-ascribing vainglory. When the people had so much to eat and the blessings were so manifold all around them and they were living in houses built by others and they are cultivating vineyards that had been planted years before by the inhabitants of the land who now were chased out and they almost didn't have to lift a finger. God won their battles for them. And now as they're surrounded by this blessing and prosperity and plenty, the temptation to think, I've done this, might come into their mind. Like Nebuchadnezzar on his rooftop, see, the is there anyone more glorious than me? Look what I've built. And how ridiculous would it be to slip into that notion if you had just inhabited a land that God had prepared for you in such an obvious way. Nevertheless, the people would commit blasphemy. They would backslide. And the temptations of prosperity and plenty would come in and the luxury and convenience of the new life that they had would lead them away from their Lord if they weren't careful, and so it was. In the repentance, Israel confessed their great blasphemies, God's great mercies, and further blasphemies uh, we read in verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast their law, cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. It's that second reference to blasphemies. And here we have a list. In what ways did the people blaspheme God? Beyond the uh, making, the fashioning of a golden calf and that perverted worship, profane worship that we read of before in verse 18, we now add to that disobedience, rebellion, despising the law, and killing the prophets. These are ways that the people in their blasphemy uh, rebelled against their Lord. And in their repentance, Israel confessed as much. We have been disobedient. When Moses finally came down from the mountain, he did so 
bearing the right rules, the true laws, the good statutes, the commandment, making known to them the holy Sabbath, the commandment and statutes, and the law that Moses, the servant of God, had been commissioned to give to them, to proclaim to them. That's drawn from Nehemiah 9.13. Now, with this firm covenant in writing, the people return to this standard of absolute truth. They separate themselves in 9.28 or 10.28. They separate themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. We will not give our daughters, they say in verse 30, to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What are they saying? They're saying that they will not disobey, rebel, despise the law, or kill the prophets based upon competing worldviews, ideas, pagan religions, or cultures that surround them. No. In their repentance... Israel recognizes that to do so would be great blasphemy. They greatly blasphemed the Lord. That is to say, they treated irreverent the holy. They desecrated, they despised, they spit upon, they tread upon. They treated lightly the holiness of God when they disobeyed His word, when they blatantly turned against His law. Now let me detail for you two kinds of disobedience. We all struggle with sin and disobey with frequency, even us believers. Lord, perfect and sanctify us and purify your church. But there's a difference between disobeying the law, knowing all the while that you stand guilty because you believe the law, and the kind of disobedience that is a higher blasphemy still, which is, according to Psalm 9420, to frame injustice by statute. Let me illustrate this by asking you a question. What's better for a nation? That there be 100,000 homosexuals in a nation and the law not recognized as legitimate so-called same-sex marriage? Or that there be 1,000 homosexuals in a nation, yet the law recognize that such is a perversion of God's created order? I submit, or, uh, or I guess I messed, messed that up. 1,000 homosexuals in a land and have, have the land actually affirm homosexuality as a legit, you know, whatever marriage or civil union. Do you follow me there? So in the one case, you have thousands who are falling short of the law that is affirmed as a standard. In the other case, you have a few that are practicing it, yet the law itself, that what is proclaimed as truth, the standard has been perverted, has been desecrated, has been profaned. And this is the kind of blasphemy that the people are repenting of, of disobeying the Lord's statutes and codifying that disobedience by raising up for themselves new standards of right rule and judges who did not uphold the law of God and drawing from the cultures and the people's new standards of culture and new ways of justice and new ideas about righteousness. And in this, they were rebelling against the Lord who said that his word is to be written in stone, right? They enter into the promised land. It's to be carved in plaster on this permanent memorial so that every word of it is not to be forgotten by future generations. Or the king, Deuteronomy 17, when he is set up to rule over them, he is required to take with his own pen the ink and write down a copy of the entire law of God, and that is to be certified by the Levitical order, and he is to be judged according to its standard. If he falls short in his rule by codifying injustice by statute, he is to be removed from his office, and the people are to do this. They are not to suffer disobedience and rebellion from the word of God and his holy law among them. But instead of doing this, what did the people do? You see in this idiom here translated, they cast your law behind their back. Cast something behind your back. Think of littering in a public park. You know, you're eating a popsicle and you take the wrapper and you just cast it behind your back. 
You don't even think about it. You could care less about it. Think about taking out the trash and how many people remembered everything you threw away last week in your garbage can. You don't remember, uh, you know, uh, all, everything. I, I'm sure you couldn't just make a catalog of the containers and the wrappers and the food and, and the broken toys and so forth and the uh, dust that was swept up off your floor. Why? Because you cast that refuse behind your back. Get it out of here. This is the idiom that's used to describe the attitude of the people toward the law of God. It's like, who cares? Forget it. It's so much rubbish. And in doing so, they proceeded to even kill the messengers of the Lord who called them to correction and repentance. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. Well, this prophet is a real problem for us. He makes me feel guilty. I know what I'll do. I'll kill him. You see here, by further blasphemies, the people were demonstrating their wickedness uh, in these times, disobeying, rebelling, despising, killing the prophets. And in their repentance, Israel confessed as much and turned to the Lord. They turned back to His Word, and they heard the word of their prophets once again. Two people who basically uh, stood in this office would be Ezra and Nehemiah at this time. They were proclaiming God's Word, and the people were hearing God's Word through the proclaimers, through the gospel preachers, and they were proceeding accordingly, repenting of their sin and turning to the Lord. Now, all of this foreshadows a moment in, the, in history future of ultimate blasphemy and mercy. I want to turn you to Matthew 23, and I want you to see a direct connection between Nehemiah 9 and the Gospel of Matthew as Jesus is speaking. Matthew 23 is among the harshest judgment language in Jesus' entire ministry, and it's calling woes down upon the Pharisees. The so-called elite and religious class who were called to be stewards of God's Word or were derelict in their duty, so Jesus reserved His harshest criticism and strongest proclamation of judgment for them. Why did He do so? Well, let me read and then I'll answer. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are to escape the sentence to hell? being sentenced to hell. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. No, the direct connection between Nehemiah 9 and Matthew 23 is this, Jesus is bringing a covenant lawsuit against those who are unfaithful to the promises made in Nehemiah's day. You see, the repentance in Nehemiah's day did not stick. And now we have hundreds of years later, those who assumed, who presumptuously stood in the place as leaders, religious leaders of God's people, in their heart, but yet their hearts were far from Him, and in so doing, they're exhibiting the same blasphemies that the people repented of years ago. And they had sworn to their own hurt. That covenant still stood. Uh, they had sworn, do you remember in Nehemiah chapter 10, 
that uh, as that uh, solemn document is written out, the people separate themselves unto the law of God. And it says in verse 29, they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. That was given by Moses, the servant of God. And now Jesus is pronouncing curses and oaths for those who have broken faith with this covenant. This is a serious situation. He goes on to prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem itself, which took place in history in A.D. 70, in the, prece- or in the succeeding chapters. Chapter 24 and more judgment language on into chapter 25. You see, this is serious. And according to Jesus' words, after issuing this covenant lawsuit, the, in fact, the Pharisees did, and did exactly as Jesus predicted. Well, before we uh, point too many fingers their direction, not realizing the ones point back, pointing back at us, notice how we do the same types of things in our day and age. We hold to a form of righteousness, but we are hypocrites. In other words, People these days condemn our forefathers because of their uh, slavery, let's say. Slavery is the original wicked sin that's uh, popular in our culture today. Yet, we are like whitewashed tombs. We condemn slavery out of one side of our mouth and and we endorse it in another by passing stimulus packages that effectively sell our children to the state. And future tax dollars are now owed to a tyrant from children not even born yet because we will not hold ourselves accountable to the same law that we point the fingers back retroactively at other people in history. That's one example of the whitewashed tomb kind of duplicity that we see in our day today. Another example, everybody hates Hitler, don't they? He's the most evil man that ever was. But what you find in our culture is more often than not, Hitler is used as a scapegoat. Oh, at least we're not as bad as Hitler. Hitler should be in hell. He's perhaps the only one. should be condemned. That's why we think. Why? Because he committed this, whatever, uh, ethnic genocide. Meanwhile, we have eclipsed Hitler's horror show by millions with abortion in our land. Whitewashed tombs. The so-called self-proclaimed moralists of our day, the scribes and Pharisees of our hour, build tombs to the prophets and decorate monuments to the righteous and say, we're not like the wicked men of the past, like Hitler or like slave owners. Meanwhile, there's more slavery and bondage and oppression and self-inflicted judgment and to the tune of the slaughter of millions and so on and so forth in our land than any of the wicked who preceded them. And then a third example, this is one to be, to be on guard for as well. It's going to become increasingly politically popular, even among the right wing, to blame China for this whole crisis that we have right now. Oh, China is the real problem. You know, oh, this lab in China or the communist government, or we can't trust what they say. Is your word trustworthy, politician in the United States? Do you care about the loss and the innocent and the suffering and the lonely and those who can't defend themselves, the fatherness and the widow, oh, politician in the United States? I don't think so. Not when you're continuing bills to fund the government, send tax dollars to the tune of $500 billion to an institution almost wholly dedicated to the slaughter of the unborn, i.e. Planned Parenthood. I don't think so. Yes, China is wicked. They need to repent. But if we use China as a scapegoat, oh, it's their fault that we're in this predicament. What have we done? We failed to realize the opportunity to repent before a holy God because no matter what instrument he uses, you bet we deserve what we're getting right now. 
Did the Israelites have the luxury to say the reason we're suffering is because Assyria is full of wicked people? They were the terrorists of that day. You know, they were the Muslim extremists of their hour. And or did the Israelites at the time of Nehemiah say the only reason we were in exile is because Babylon is so wicked? No, they recognized that their reason that they were oppressed and suffering and in exile was because of their blasphemy, because they had turned away from their God. So God would use an Assyria and a Babylon as his instrument, as his hammer of judgment upon them. And yes, the Lord would hold them accountable too. But in the same way, don't you think it's a more biblical conclusion to say that God is using China and our day and age as a hammer to chastise us? God can use whatever he wills, and he does this sort of thing, and we have a record of it in history, so let us learn. Let us not be like whitewashed tombs, but let us realize that we have fallen short of our covenant, and let us repent. God is bringing, so to speak, if you will, a covenant lawsuit against us and holding, accountable, holding us accountable to our prior commitments to godliness and saying that we must repent. And so I pray that we would. Now, at this time, the blasphemy is the ultimate blasphemy, if you will, in all of history that proceeds in this moment in time. And we see this taking shape in Matthew 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Um, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So you see, they were plotting for their opportunity to commit the highest blasphemy, blaspheming of all, which is to falsely accuse the Son of God of wickedness and to condemn him to a humiliating execution of Roman capital punishment, death, even death on the cross. This blasphemy that we see confessed in Nehemiah 9 comes to a head in Matthew 26 and the rest of the gospel. Because the people of God did not listen to the prophets but killed them, eventually God sent his own son as Jesus prophesied in parable and they killed him too. That's what sin does. Instead, if we double down in our sin, instead of confessing on a heart level that we have fallen immeasurably short and crying out to our Savior... We will shoot the messenger. And this is what mankind has done as their solution to the guilt, to kill the one that says they're guilty. But I want you to notice as we close this message today that that very act itself served as an instrument for ultimate mercy. The hands of sinful men, falsely accusing, condemning, and crucifying our Lord proved to be the very instrument whereby ultimate mercy would be available for you and me. We could not keep the covenant, but the second Adam could. They killed, we killed the second Adam, but in so doing, he satisfied the terms that we might dwell on his holy hill, like we sang Psalm 15. O Lord, who can dwell on your holy hill? He who has pure heart, clean hands, hasn't lifted up his soul to an idol. We can't dwell in your holy hill. How might we dwell with you? Well, Jesus Christ, His perfect righteousness, can dwell with God. And if we are in Him, if we accept His righteousness as our reward, 
If we accept his death as a payment of our sin, then we can dwell with the holy God and our covenant relationship can be restored. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Next week, let's have communion again. We skipped one month, and oh, how I missed it. And as we regather for communion next week, I beg you consider the Scripture. What is symbolized at that meal is the broken body of Jesus Christ and His shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He took the punishment of our blasphemy on his back to give us eternal life. He stepped into flesh to be the second Adam where all our covenant keeping failed to fulfill perfectly the law of God in our stead. In this one event, the ultimate blasphemies of men prove instruments in securing the ultimate mercies of God through the death of Jesus Christ in our place. The prophet of prophets has been killed but by the cleansing power of His shed blood, our covenant relationship is renewed with the Lord. Let us close in thankfulness of this. Dear Father, we thank You so much for the precious blood of Jesus Christ who was shed, whose blood was shed on our behalf. Father, we thank You that though we have broken faith with You, that we have denied You, blasphemed Your name in so many ways, backslidden even, Lord, as a church in this land, that there nevertheless remains a sufficient sacrifice for us and a gospel that holds out hope for the backslider, even for the pagan and the, those who are lost in their transgressions and sins and have no former association with You. Lord, the answer is the same, that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners. Lord, I pray that in our land that you would move us to repent as Israel did of our great blasphemies and that you would move us to behold your great mercies. That in your provision and in your lordship and in the prosperity of your kingdom holds out eternal hope for each and every true believer. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see you as the one who not only has the power to judge when the, law, when the covenant is broken, but also the power to fulfill the covenant in your own blood. And I pray that we would be assured of our salvation and we would be sanctified in holiness as we behold you crucified for us. And may we be bold in proclaiming this message because there is no golden calf that could substitute for strength of the truth of the word of God. There is no man who can stand in the place and offer hope. There is no one, Lord, that is, can stand next to you and they will all die. They will all be proven fools. They will all be judged collectively, but you will stand forever. I pray on that final day, when every enemy has been made your footstool, that we will stand with you because we have trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation, repented of our sins, and placed faith in him alone. In his name we pray, in the name of Jesus, amen.